0: The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Amen. Thank you, Dave. Would you uh, join me? Why don't we go to prayer right now? Let's lift these things up to God. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we thank you for your faithfulness to this congregation over 50 years now and uh, for moving us from location to location as the need arises and as the vision grows, we pray that if we're on the edge of that now, again, Lord, that you'd make it very clear, and we continue to look to you, O oh God, to, uh, to lead us in unity, to make it clear. Thank you for the many people that have stepped forward and been using their giftings and their abilities to, to lead and to work behind the scenes in, in the various ways. And we just ask you, Lord, to continue to guide us, Father, our eyes are on you, and we, we know that you're going to lead us. Lord, we do this because we want Christ exalted here in this area of Winnipeg. We want to increase our ability to influence people. We want you, O oh God, to send us more souls that we could care for, more people that we could embrace, that we could disciple, that we could bring to you, more to sit under the preaching of your word, more to worship your holy name together. More to offer programs of Bible study, more immigrants that can be involved, more other groups uh, in the community. Father, we just ask you to continue to show us how it is that we're meant to expand our vision and grow in the name of Christ. And uh, Lord, it's all for your glory. Keep our eyes ever on that and uh, bless us. Lord, as we prepare this morning to open your sacred text, the Word of God, the Bible, again, Uh, We're asking again that your Holy Spirit would come down, God, to make plain the things that I speak, uh, that you'd open our hearts and our minds to what you have to say, and that we will have something to think about and then something to do about that as we seek to be a, a changed people. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, the name Thomas Linacre is hardly known today except for a college in Oxford in England that bears his name. He was a 16th century scholar, a physician, believe it or not, to King Henry VIII, and uh, uh, an academic in his own right, a teacher to both Erasmus and Sir Thomas More. As an academic, he knew both Latin and Greek, and yet he lived at a time before the Protestant Reformation when the Bible was not in the hands of the common people, but rather it was really in the hands only of the clergy. And so not being a formal clergy at the time, he did not have a copy of the Bible. Though he knew the Latin in, in the Vulgate, he also knew the Greek, uh, and he could have read the New Testament. Well, one day he was talking to a friend of his who, who was a priest. And this priest was telling him about the Bible in the original language that he had. And he asked to borrow it. And so the priest lent him a copy of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as he sat in his home and he opened up in the original Greek language, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he was just amazed at what he was reading. And many weeks later, when he returned the manuscript of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to this priest... Here's the words that he said. He said to this priest, he said, either these are not the gospel or we are not Christians. Either these are not the gospel or we are not Christians. It was pre-Reformation days, stirrings were happening. The church of Christ on earth had succumbed To many worldly influences of secularization, corruption in the priesthood, the church was no longer just in the world but of the world, and there was a huge need for some changes. It wasn't long after this when a young monk by the name of Martin Luther would walk up to the castle church in Wittenberg and nail on that door of that church his 95 theses that would begin to prompt... What, was come, what came to be known as the Protestant Reformation. He was protesting something that Thomas Linacre was talking about. He was protesting the gap that existed between what Jesus taught His disciples to be and what His church and His followers were becoming. That gap ought to be a concern for anyone who says that they are a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, why do I share that at the beginning of this day when we are beginning a a study, an expositional series on the Gospel of John? Well, I share it because whenever we open a portion of the Word of God to study, we have an opportunity to take off our former glasses and to look with fresh eyes upon something that was either ignored because of disuse... Misunderstood because of misuse, twisted because of abuse, or overly familiar because of use that never ended in actual application of the Word of God to our lives. So as we pick up the Gospel of John today and in the weeks to come, as we pick up the Gospel of John and look at this profound teaching, we we re-examine not only the Christ that we have come to believe in, we have to look at the Christ John presents And then we have to look at the kind of followers of Christ that we have become and whether or not there is a gap between our experience and what Jesus has taught about being a follower of Jesus Christ. This is an incredible opportunity. And we should not take it lightly. That gap should be a concern for anyone who calls themselves Christians. The goal of this sermon series is to look upon Jesus as John presents him And also to look upon ourselves in our faith response. John himself tells us that that's the purpose of his writing. last chapter, chapter 20, verse 31, John says this. He says, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Now today I'm going to introduce the Gospel of John. And uh, we're going to start with chapter 1. And we're going to cover one chapter per week, and it'll take us to the end of August. And uh, after I leave for my sabbatical, um, the other pastors and other lay preachers are going to carry on one chapter per week, and then I get to come back in August and finish it off. Our goal is to display Jesus, the beauty of His person, the authenticity of His claims, the authority of His words, and the power of His works. I hope that at the end, or in the process, it will impart greater knowledge, inspire deeper faith, ignite purer devotion, and enthuse us with bolder witness. One of the commentators on John, Leon Morris, says that the gospel of John is a pool that a child can wade into, but it's also a pool that an elephant can dive into. And so as we open these pages, we look at... What God's Word has to teach us. You know, when I preached in the Gospel of John in a former church in Thunder Bay, I took nine Sundays to get through chapter one. And today I've got to get through chapter one because we decided we would do a four-month series and finish it by the fall. What does that mean? It means that for every preacher that gets up here to take one chapter of the Gospel of John, there is a discerning process uh, in their study that has to pick and choose what are the big ideas, what is the main point, what are we going to leave out from side points in order to stay true to what God's Word has to say to us. I cannot help but compare it to a trip that Pat and I are planning as we get ready to go to Italy and to Greece during our sabbatical. And we're going to be a few days in the city of Rome, for example. Now when we get to the city of Rome, there is so much to do. After the first service, there was a couple that came to me and they were just listing all these things. And I was thinking, maybe we should spend two weeks in Rome. Well, the fact is is that we could probably, probably spend a year in Rome in order to just understand more about the history of that city, the culture, the people, and all that has taken place there. But we've got four days. And similarly, when we open a portion of the Scriptures, you you have so much time in it, and depending on how much time you have, that's how deep it's going to impact you. So what I am appealing to you on is this, that, that though we are preaching through the Gospel of John in four months, you have the opportunity to go way deeper in your own study. And I urge you to open up the Gospel of John and read the Gospel of John all the way through, several times if you can. Also, I would encourage you to note on our webpage that we have been given permission from the publica- publishers to put on study, scripture study notes, and, and every week they're going to be posted there according to the sermon preached that week. There will be the Holman Christian Standard Study Bible notes, the Ap- Apologetic Study Bible, the New Living Translation Life Application Bible, and the Questions for Lesson Makers resource. All of that is going to be just one click away. If you want to go deeper in the Gospel of John, because we can only go so deep in a Sunday morning sermon. John's account of the life of Jesus Christ is different than all other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those other ones are called the synoptic Gospels, which means to see the same way as. And see, because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you were to read them, you're, you're reading much about, about 70 or 80% of the same content over and over again. But when you pick up the Gospel of John, John just comes in a different approach as he tells the stories of Jesus and the life of Christ and the teaching of Jesus. And we're going to see some of that difference this morning as we open our Bibles to John chapter 1. And if you will turn to that portion with me now. John chapter 1. And uh, we're going to read verses 1 to 18. John chapter 1. And verses 1 to 18, and if you're able to stand, would you stand with me as I read God's Word? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made, without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. He came to that which was His own, but His own did not receive Him. And yet, to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. May God bless his word. You may be seated. The author, G. Campbell Morgan, said that the first 18 verses of John, we have an explanation of everything that follows in the rest of the gospel. Just as if you were to read the first three chapters of the first book of the Bible, Genesis, you have everything laid out there that are key theological themes that you would find in all of the rest of the Bible. And that's why, perhaps, the the two books begin with the same words, in the beginning. In fact, uh, that is the title of the book of Genesis. The word Genesis is a Greek term. The actual Hebrew title of the book of Genesis means, in the beginning. And those are the words that John and, and Genesis begin with. Think about that for a moment. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And John chapter 1, verse 1, both start with the words, in the beginning. They both take us back to a time before time, in the beginning of time when there was nothing as we know it, except God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The scriptures teach the pre-existence of God, this being that never had a beginning and he'll never have an end. It's taught throughout Scripture. In the Psalms, for example, chapter 90, verse 1, it says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That's speaking of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And the word that John chooses to Used to introduce us to Jesus Christ in this gospel account is a Greek word called logos. The word logos would have been a great word to address both the Jewish Hebrew population and the Greek Gentile population. To the Jewish listeners that were reading the gospel of John, the word logos would have clearly meant word. It's the word word. It means word. The word became flesh. And to to their Jewish mind thinking it was exactly how the whole of creation came into being. God spoke and it was created. It was a word. He said light and there was light. He said earth and there was earth and so on. They would have also understood that the law was spoken and given to Moses. The prophets came and spoke the word of God. So word was a very valuable word for the Jewish people. And for the the Greeks that would read, read the Gospel of John, it had more of a philosophical approach or background. It had, in that day, a meaning that almost meant this ultimate reality, this philosophical ultimate reality. In the beginning, it was, he's saying to the Greek listeners. And so John begins, and he says incredibly, jumps into the deep end of the pool. And he says seven huge declarations in the first five verses about Jesus Christ. First of all, he says, in the beginning was the Word. So he, Jesus, was in the beginning. Secondly, he says he was with God. Thirdly, he was God. Jesus was God. Next, he says that he is a person. It says he was with God. It doesn't say this cosmic energy this force, this light. No, no, he says he was with God. He's a person of the Trinity. And it says that through him, the word, all things were made. Jesus was involved with the Holy Spirit and with God the Father in creation. And then he says that life is found in him and that the light for all of humanity that we're walking in darkness is found in this word, Jesus Christ. Now, if we go back to the Genesis account for just a moment... The very first thing that God spoke when creation was brought into being, when when there was this formless, void, uninhabited space, the first thing that God said was light. And there was light. And then it says that God separated the darkness from the light. And when Jesus Christ came and He says that He was the light of life, Jesus' own presence in this world is that very thing that will separate the light from the darkness. He will judge all of humanity one day and separate light from darkness. The Bible says here that, that uh, this is the light that brings light, the life that brings light to every man. Now John goes on to introduce a second man to us in verse six. But before we look at John the Baptist, not John the Apostle who's writing, but John the Baptist, let's go to verse 14, because John the Apostle says one more very important thing about the Logos, the Word. He says that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John is saying that this eternal God that never had a beginning and never has an end, that has created everything that we know, that this eternal God took on the form of a human. He became flesh and He tabernacled among us is the word. He pitched His tent among us and we saw His glory. There was people that saw Jesus, knew Jesus. He was fully God, robed in flesh. And the amazing thing for those that would have read this and understood this is that those who understood the Old Testament knew that no one can see God and live. Look what it says in verse 18 of this passage. It says, no one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made Him known. And that word for made Him known is the word exegesis. It's where we get our word that If if expositional preaching is happening, we exegete, we explain the text. And if God is going to be understood on this earth, it will have to be because somebody exegetes God, explains God to us. And the Bible says Jesus does that. Jesus explains who God is. We would not know about God except for the fact that He came to earth and He explained Himself to us through His Son, Jesus. And so Jesus then draws back the curtain and shows us who God is. Now, yes, it's a mediated version of God because it's got to be robed in flesh. It's it's a human man. But it says we beheld His glory, glory of the one and only. In September 1997, maybe some of you will remember when Mother Teresa died in Calcutta. And, And the whole media of the world zoned in on Calcutta when Mother Teresa died. And there were streets were lined with people on on the way up to the place where Mother Teresa's body lay. And they wanted to, to see her before she was buried. And there were reporters in the line investigating and talking, and one reporter interviewed a woman who was a Hindu and asked her why she was in the line to see Mother Teresa. And she said, she responded by saying, I want to see Mother Teresa before she is buried because she has been God on earth. And the reporter even clarified it by saying, but but you are a Hindu woman and Mother Teresa was a Christian, followed the Christian God. Now, I suppose that if you understand Hinduism, this woman was not really saying God, big G, but rather A god among many gods, because Hindus do believe among many gods. And she was not saying, like John was saying here, that the word was God. But she was saying likely that Mother Teresa was a god of many gods that explain this incredible being. But if we understand what the Bible is teaching here, the Bible says that when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw His glory, we saw the glory of the one and true only living God, capital G, the only one that could claim the name God. Christianity does not present us with a list of one God among many gods that you might choose from. Neither does it present to us this idea that there's this cosmic, unknowable, distant, impersonal force that might guide us. No, Christianity explains and and presents to us a man, Jesus Christ. And this man did not say, follow my teaching. He didn't say that. He said, follow me. Follow me. In him was life, not in his teaching. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. In John 17, when Jesus is praying before the next day he's going to be crucified, he says in verse 3, Now this is eternal life that they may know you, God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To know him, that's eternal life. And so John begins his gospel in the deep end of the pool, presenting Christ in In this incredible way, eternal God made flesh. Let's go on to the second point and let's go back to verse 6 and look at John the Apostle presenting John the Baptist, who I think actually shouldn't be called John the Baptist because he got that name because he was out in the wilderness baptizing people in preparation for Jesus' coming. But he probably should be called John the Witness. Because there's seven times in chapter 1 alone where the word witness is used in a noun or verb form, that he was the one who testified concerning Jesus. And John the witness says, I'm just, I'm just a voice called in the wilderness. Prepare for the Lord. I'm just the forerunner. I don't matter. What matters is, is that you know him. That's what a witness does. Now, the word witness... Maybe surprise you. The word witness is where we get our word martyr from. And several times, seven times in this scripture, John is testifying. He's, he's identified as a martyr. And what does that mean? Well, probably the word got used that way because early, the early church, many of the believers who testified about believing in Jesus were martyred, were killed for their faith. I was talking with a group of people this past week who said that we live in a generation now when there are more Christian martyrs on planet earth than ever before in all of history. And I I was I, I've heard that before. I've even heard the number that annually hundred thousand people, followers of Jesus Christ, are martyred for their faith. And I I heard that I've heard that number. So I was looking into it this past week, and I, I even heard that the Vatican said the number was credible. But BBC did a a more in-depth story on this thing, and they examined the number, 100,000, and how they arrived at it, and it's kind of an average over several years that they ended up arriving at it. And if you look at the number of those that are included in it, some of the Christians that are dying supposedly for their faith are actually a result of ethnicity things, like the, the Hutus killing the Tutsis, and... And there's some of it that's civil war. So Rwanda, where the, the ethnic cleansing took place. But there's also the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where civil war, where Christians were on both sides fighting against each other. And that was also part of the number of the 100,000. And So all in all, to boil it right down, this article from the BBC said, probably the accurate number of Christians that are martyred for believing in Jesus Christ on an annual basis, is something like 10,000. Now, I'm not. Sug- that's awful. That's awful that Christians, brothers and sisters in the Lord, are dying for their faith. But I think it's important that we get to the heart of accuracy. And the other thing that the article noted is that we should not give in to fear-mongering here in North America when some people are always pointing the finger at Islam or Muslims, extremist terrorist groups. Because many Christians on earth are dying not just because of Muslim terrorists, but because of all kinds of other reasons as well. It's important for us to be informed because we can carry over into our relationships with Muslims that are neighbors here in Canada a very wrong attitude. And we need to be informed about what it is that they believe and how it is that we can show the love of Jesus Christ. I was reminded of how our attitude should be when I read this past week about three Christian boys in Uganda that were martyred. They were only teenagers. Several years ago, during a, an, a, a dictatorship that was anti-Christian, and at the place of the execution where the soldiers had taken these three boys to be killed and, and burned, the boys said to this, this to the soldiers. They said, Tell His Majesty the King that He has put our bodies in the fire. But we won't be long in the fire. Soon we will be with Jesus, which is much better. But ask your majesty the king to repent and change his mind. Or he will land in a place of eternal fire. And they lit the flame. And the three boys died singing the Ugandan martyr song. Which one verse I found was this. Oh, that I had wings like the angels. I would fly away and be with Jesus. You know, I think that those boys had the attitude of John the Baptist. The attitude that said, you need to repent. You need to know this Jesus that's coming. You You can play loose and have your own discerning judgment about any human on earth. But if you judge this human wrongly it will have eternal consequences so john came and what was john's message in the wilderness (laughs) he said things like i'm just the voice i'm just the voice calling in the wilderness make ready the way for the lord he said things like i baptize you with water but there's someone coming who's going to baptize you with the holy spirit and fire He said, I am not even worthy to untie the thongs of his sandals. That's who I am compared to him. Later on in John chapter 3, in a few weeks you'll hear someone preaching on John chapter 3, and it's verse 30, his testimony. John the Baptist says, he must become greater, and I must become less. You see, that's that's the testimony of a true witness, if you and I are going to go out from this place and be witnesses for Jesus Christ, then we have to have that attitude that it just exalts Jesus and, and debases us. We don't matter. I don't care what you think of Terry Jank. But it matters a lot what you think of Jesus Christ. This past, last week, Aliona had a, a great question. And I told her I would address it today. She asked me about the fact that there are so many messengers from God these days. There's so many people that speak in the name of God. How do you know which ones to believe? There's, there's priests and prophets and pastors and, and, and all kinds of messengers that claim to say they speak in God's name. Or they're venerated like saints and you're supposed to worship their bones and so on. How do you know who to listen to? Well, you know what? John the Baptist is a great example Because John the Baptist had the opportunity to become famous. The whole of the countryside of Judea was going out into the wilderness to to be baptized and listen to his preaching. Could have been a huge following. Could have had a big cathedral built. Could have been a following out there. What did John do? No, no, no. I'm not. don't, Don't look at me. I'm not the one. In fact, he even, later in John 1, he even takes some of his followers and says, Don't follow me. Go follow Jesus. That guy right there. Go follow him. You see, that's a good witness. That's the kind of people that we should follow, those that are pointing to Jesus Christ. Well, in the time we have left, let's look at what John says about Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verse 29, verse 36, there's twice where he says this, and I'm sure that he preached it many more than the two times listed here. But in those days, what did he say to the crowds that came out when he was baptizing Jesus in the Jordan River? He said, look! The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it says in the scripture, in the Greek text, he didn't just say, oh, look over there. It says that he cried out in a loud voice. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Surely John the Baptist was thinking about Genesis, or Exodus chapter 12 when God's people took a lamb and slaughtered it in order for their sins to be forgiven, in order for the angel of death to pass over. Do you remember the story? Do you remember the story how the children of Israel had been slaves in Egypt for over 400 years, and God raised up Moses, this prophet and man of God, and he says, I'm going to deliver Israel from Egypt. But Pharaoh was a stubborn man, and Pharaoh would not, he he claimed to be deity, and he would not let his slave labor go And plague after plague came upon Egypt, and they were being impoverished by these plagues, but he still held on to his pride, and he would not believe in the God of the Hebrews. And finally, Moses was told by God, there's one more plague, and he's going to listen to you this time. And he said, I'm going to strike down the firstborn of every Egyptian home. Incredible. Awful. And God prepared his people by saying to each family, go to your flocks and choose the choicest of lambs. Take it into your house, lay your hands on that little lamb and slit its throat and bleed it out. And then take a brush and put on the doorposts of your home that blood, paint it red, your doorframe. And tonight when I send the angel of death and it passes over all of Egypt, those homes that do not have the blood of the lamb sprinkled on the doorposts will have a firstborn child struck dead. And every home where the blood is found, the angel of death will pass over and not touch that home. That is the origin of the Jewish Passover. That is the origin of what we celebrate at the Lord's table when we gather here. Can you imagine the crying out? Surely John the Baptist was thinking of Isaiah chapter 53, where it says that he was led, a prophecy of Jesus, 800 years before Jesus came to earth. 800 years, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. You know, many of you might be familiar with the name of the author, Robert Coleman, Evangelism Explosion. He wrote a book called The Heartbeat of Evangelism. And he tells a story about a 19th century preacher there by the name of Dr. Charles Berry. He had grown up in a humanistic time and age. His, his, he was a minister in a church, but he had grown up in a, and been trained in a very liberal, theologically liberal seminary. The kind that taught that Jesus was a good man... Jesus was a moral teacher. Jesus was a good example. You should try to be like Jesus. And so in his first pastorate in England, one evening there was a knock at the door, and he opened the door to find a poorly dressed Lancashire girl standing there in her rags. And she said, Are you a minister? He said, Yes. Then you must come quickly. I want to get my mother in. And immediately... Dr. Barry thought of the drunken woman that must be on the street somewhere, and so he said, well, go get the police. But the girl responded more urgently. He said, no, my mother is dying, and you must come with me quickly and get her into heaven. And when he arrived at her bedside, he knelt down beside the woman that was dying on her bed, and she, he began to tell her about Jesus, began to tell her about the kindness of Jesus. And how he would pick up little children in his arms. And how he was so uh, loving to everybody, even his enemies. And how his example is one that we should follow. And the woman grabbed his arm and interrupted the preacher and said, Mister, that's no good for me. That's no good for the likes of me. I am a sinner and I lived my life. And now can't you tell me of someone who is going to have mercy on my soul? And later on, Charles Berry writes this. He says, I stood there in the presence of a dying woman, and I had nothing to tell her. And in order to bring something to this dying woman, I leaped back to my mother's knee and to my cradle faith, and I told her about the cross and the Jesus Christ that died there in order to save sinners and tears began to run down her cheeks he says and she grabbed him by the arm again and said now now you're getting it he ends this commentary about that event by saying these words i want you to know that i got her in and blessed be god i got in myself You see, if you're going to be a witness for Jesus Christ, if you're going to go and represent him somewhere with someone, it's not going to do you any good or them any good to talk about Jesus, the moral example, Jesus, the good teacher. You won't be a true witness unless you talk about sin and and blood that was spilled, the Passover lamb that died, that is needed for sinners like us to enter heaven. Jesus said in this scripture that he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Or John says this, and he says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What an incredible grace offer. So, what kind of Jesus do you believe in? Is there a gap? What kind of faith do you bring to that Jesus? Does it need some revision? When death comes knocking at your door, you don't want to have some moral example Jesus. You want to have a Jesus that is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. I'll ask the worship team to come. Father in heaven, we thank you for this privilege of hearing your word, and we ask you, Lord, to touch the hearts of each one of us. Jesus, we all bring to you a faulty concept of who you are and what you're like, and we all bring to you a lot of unbelief, and we struggle to offer you true faith, but today I ask you, Lord Jesus, to speak into our darkened hearts, bring light, and for each one, as we respond to you, God, help us to draw near to know the assurance of eternal life through Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.
1: Behind the scenes, a lot of work is going on. Up in the glory of heaven, angels, advisors, God himself, and Christ the Lamb planning what he wants to do with this group of people. And that plan is a long-term plan, way back in the Old Testament, and just a glimmer here, but for the word of the Lord is right and true. He's faithful in all he does The concept of the word as the big guide isn't just New Testament. It's ancient. It comes from the throne of heaven itself. But at the end, we really get an understanding of what God wants to do. And it's at the end of a very profound worship service up in heaven. I just want to read a, a closing few words. The elders and the uh, um, others sang a new song, saying, "You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and your blood, with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe." And a language and people and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom, priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, that huge choir sang, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then this is where we come in. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. That's your calling. Go in the peace and love of Christ.